Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, a King Killer Chronicle reread podcast. We are your hosts, Will and Phoenix. Let's get into it. Welcome to Tales from the Waystone, Season 2, Episode 39. We can't stop here. This is Bat Country, where we will be looking at chapters 84 through 86 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of borders and boundaries. All right, so this is normally where I would give the disclaimers and all of that. I'll probably still do it. But before we get into that, there are some big, huge, amazing life changes happening to the two of us. We are cross all your fingers and toes, going to hopefully have our own house that we are buying soon. We are in the process of getting all of the stuff figured out. We are supposed to close sometime in December. And what does that mean for this project? Well, it means that the two of us aren't going to have as much time to prepare. We still want to do this project because we find it rejuvenating and fun. But I'm going to be real here. There are some things that we actually research and I don't think we're going to for the next three to six episodes, probably. So we're going to make some changes so that we can accommodate our mental health. And those include we're not going to do a recap where we have to think about how to cram the recap into 45 seconds to avoid torturing one another when we're already kind of in this joint torture session that is buying a house. Yeah. You know, we want to make sure that we have enough energy to get the important parts done here while still making sure that we don't miss anything on the home buying process. The other thing is that we're not going to do interesting fact and we might outsource some of the things like if you'd like to send us a tweet as long as that still exists and tell us seven words from your life or give us what your phronemos for our sections will be. Give us an interesting fact, presumably pretty small, that we can talk about and give you credit if you so desire. If you have seven words from the book that you really, really like, that coincides with the chapters we're reading, we will include that if you'd like. And as always, our Discord server is open. The link should be in the description of this. We would love to hear your feedback. And spoiler for my seven words from life, because we'd love it if you'd help us. Anyway, micro machines. So as always, each week we will be examining a section of the wise man's fear through a chosen lens and figuring out what we can take from the text to apply to our real lives. We will also take some time to explore models of practical wisdom from the text with an Aristotelian Fernemos of the week. If you'd like, send us your Fernemos. It'll help us. I swear we're not going to do the interesting fact for a while. We are going to recommend stuff because we still enjoy stuff. And then we will wrap things up with seven words from the book and seven words from somebody's life, probably. Before we begin, let's get some disclaimers out of the way. First of all, we are in no way affiliated with Patrick Rothfuss or his publisher, Daw Books, though, Pat, if you are listening, we'd really appreciate some affiliation with you, just saying. Secondly, 
We assume that you've read the main books, The Name of the Wind and The Wise Man's Fear, as well as The Lightning Tree and The Slow Regard of Silent Things, because, say it with me, there will be spoilers. Also, a word to our community, please be kind to yourselves, one another, and the creators of the worlds that we love exploring. All right, so now we're nixing the 45 second recap, as we said. So now let's go ahead and dive in, shall we? Sounds good. So we lead off with chapter 84, The Edge of the Map. So this is where Kvothe starts to realize just how in over his head he truly is. So while he and Martin and Tempe are out scouting, Martin comes across a rare plant that is basically allergic to human contact. I love this, actually. It's kind of like if you ever have like foam or something to that effect and you try to touch it and you just kind of dissolve the foam as you touch it, the oils on your fingers dissolve whatever the bubbles are and it just shrivels and dies. Yeah, it's a little bit like that. When Martin points out that, hey, I found this and it's completely untouched, it's growing wild, he's like, you realize that means there is nobody around here. Including the people that we're looking for. What I would also point out, though, is that if it shows you that other people are around, it would show other people that you're around. Now, granted, Martin is a canny enough woodsman to make sure it doesn't get touched, but... If you have a large group of bandits, there's a good chance that at least one of them is going to slip up sooner or later. And that is where he actually points out that maps are not nearly as comprehensive as we oftentimes think they are. I mean, in our day and age of GPS, where we have satellite imagery that shows everything from this grand aerial view, it's really easy to think that, yeah, it's pretty comprehensive. But remember, this is in a society where maps are made the hard way by scouting on foot. One thing I would like to point out though about maps and GPS data and aerial images of the earth, there are some things that are classified and are kept from the view of random citizens of the planet. There are things that are region locked. There are places that the satellites just can't see yet because we just don't have that much space junk floating around our planet yet. Well, and I mean, you think about something like the Amazon rainforest where, yeah, you can get a pretty good view of that area, but because the canopy is so dense, things like paths and tracks and roads, you could go without seeing any of them. A lot of settlements are completely invisible from space just because they're hidden by dense tree cover. Absolutely true. Now, as a fair warning, guys, we also aren't taking our notes the way that we normally would when we're reading. So we will probably get things out of order and we'll probably forget things or just skip things by accident or on purpose or something. Sorry, we're a little bit busy, but this is also something that we do for fun. So going back a little bit, the very beginning of this chapter, I think, is important because Kvothe is still mimicking Tempe. He's trying to do the Katan without knowing any of the moves of the Katan, and he keeps screwing it up. And eventually Tempe is just like, fine, whatever. No, you were doing it wrong. Here, fixed to you. 
And then he goes back and just turns his back on Kvothe and says, going back and doing what I was doing, but now you won't fall over. And Kvothe just takes this initially as, oh, that was really nice. Thank you. Little bit of gratitude. He does not know yet how absolutely monumental that little bit of help really was. He doesn't understand what it actually meant because Tempe broke a taboo there. As we will come to discover, this is something that is meant to be kept very proprietary and Tempe has just let him in on essentially a trade secret. We don't know that Quoth really understands the magnanimity of that just yet. Back to Martin and Tempe and Quoth in the woods. Your talk about the map and how maps are only as accurate as the scouting that has been done to make them can. There's lots and lots of outdoor noise. I apologize. This won't happen in our new place because the windows are sealed better. Anywho, I'm slightly distracted. Airplane also won't happen because we're moving away from the airport. Anyway, sometimes, though, the quality of the scouting isn't great because who in their right mind wants to go explore the forest when they could just draw a circle around a huge track of land and call it this one dude's or this one duchy's or this one town's? The forest. The Eld. Right. I think the part that Martin really gets at is that maps give us an illusion of control and ownership. They give us the illusion of knowledge. So for instance, we compare Martin who, he knows the map pretty well, but more than that, he knows the land. He's got this in-depth knowledge that comes from having lived off the land for extended periods of time. He knows how to read the terrain and the surroundings and how to navigate based on reckoning, based on the placement of the sun and moon and stars. He knows how to read based on the light. He knows all of these things about it. And that's different from the illusion of knowledge that having a map can give you. So like a map can make you feel like you know where you're going. It can make you feel like you know exactly what's out there. But as anyone who's ever dealt with using Google Maps to get to something that hasn't been updated yet will tell you, that illusion can disappear in an instant the moment you try and get to someplace that it doesn't think exists. Another thing here, Foth is now realizing the magnitude of the mayor just sent me out here to die in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, this entire party could die and leave their bodies and no one would find them. Ever. Makes you wonder about the other four people in the party. Because if the mayor sent Quoth out here to die, what was the intent with the others? Here's my theory. I think the mayor didn't send Quoth out to die, but he did send Quoth out on an assignment as someone who was expendable. He does want the objective accomplished. That's why he's hired Tempe, who is not cheap. That's why he's hired Martin, who is also not cheap. And then also Hespa and Daydan, who are competent. He's hired people who can accomplish his goals, but he's also hired people that no one will ask any questions about if they're gone. And now, much like the way that Chapter 85 completely interrupts the action, the story, 
whatever. We're just going to hard left turn into that. So we take a break here for an interlude called Fences. So here we've got both Chronicler and Bast taking a little break as Hap and Mary and their kids come to visit and take advantage of Chronicler's scribe services. You might recognize them as, I believe it's the Bentleys. What we know about them is they've fallen on hard times. They seem to be good folks, but they're running behind on their payments for their taxes. And we learn a little bit about the socioeconomic and political times that Noir is going through right now. So for one thing, we know that there are taxation problems. There are levies that have been overly charged to the citizens of the town and presumably to all small towns and maybe all the big towns. Yeah. And the way the levies work in this world is they generally are not for the greater common good, but rather for the enrichment of the upper class and most likely to pay for war. Because how do soldiers get paid? The government pays them. And how does the government get money to pay the soldiers? Well, they got to do these taxes over and beyond what they would otherwise be taking from the feudal system. You say got to, and I say choose to. I'm sure that there are some wealthy people who could stand to not be bringing in nearly as much income directly to their pocket, like the king or the mayor, who could potentially fund their little vanity war without having to destroy the lives of working class people. This is probably true, which is why I say most of this is done for the enrichment of the upper class. I agree with you. Now, there are a couple little comic relief bits in here that I think are cute. The kids are tiny. There is a question of whether or not the toddler would like his own cup of apple cider. And the mom being very astute and saying, of course, my kid would absolutely love that. Do you want to clean it up? Your floors wouldn't like it, though. <laughs> and then her daughter, who is the older one, probably still younger than six, needing to go use the restroom. And she's like, OK, Bast, please hold this and hands a kid to him. And he's just sitting there very uncomfortable the way that when I was in my 20s, I would definitely have held a child, which is under the armpits and away from my body. <laughs> and... The kid, of course, is not happy because he's being held <laughs> in such a precarious, probably uncomfortable way. And Coat, Quoth, whatever, is like, okay, Bast, nah, we're not doing that. And then plops the kid onto the counter, lets him kind of stand up a little bit, and starts singing to him. That's actually kind of interesting to me. So this is the first time that Coat, or Quoth, has actually sang or done anything musical since this started. No, it's not. He had that whole day where the travelers came by before Chronicler came by, where it was strangers and they all got really happy and boisterous. And then he feigned the knee injury. But did he himself sing? I think he did. I don't think he did. Okay, people, we're not going to argue about this. We're just going to ask you if you know the answer to that, because I'm pretty sure that when we read this, it was, oh, my God, three years ago. <laughs> <laughs> What's time? Right. So <laughs> no arguments, just like put a pin in that, ask the audience. 
Will you please help us out? I also note that not only does he kind of sing a little tune to the kid, but he insinuates that maybe Bast has a familial relation to said little child. We also know that Bast and Mary have flirted or at least exchanged letters, the nature of which I am going to leave up to the audience to speculate about. So Bast is maybe performatively horrified and says, look at the little one. He's got blonde hair. I don't. I think it's a fun little kind of maybe there's some accidental polyamory insinuated. Maybe there's just a less fun insinuation of cheating. I don't like that one. I'd rather it be with everybody's consent. I would too. I also think that it is Bast's way to brag about his flirtations and how much everyone loves him. It's also both taking him down a peg a little bit, you know, saying, oh yeah, you're bragging about how much the ladies love you. Here, this child might be yours. Ultimately, the resolution to this chapter is that we find out from Bast after they've left that he ruined the fence so that both could hire the dad, Hap, to come fix it for him. And so that both could have a reason to pay Hap to help with levy costs without saying that he's helping with levy costs. There's the old phrase that good fences make for good neighbors. And this is a case where literally a good fence is helping Quoth to be a good neighbor. I think that that's not in the spirit of the actual saying, because... It may not be in the spirit of the saying, but I think it is a fun little inversion of it. I agree with you. I also think that there's a really important bit here about how when people don't have a lot, charity is something that is very difficult to take. And oftentimes their pride is worth more than any bit of money. And so we've talked about boundaries and borders here as our theme. And this is a way that Kvothe can respect that boundary that Hap and Mary have placed around their lives. That sense that they need to have control over what they have and what they can do. They want to have agency. And this is a way that Kvothe was able to respect that boundary while still giving them some help that he knew that they would need when he was in a position to do so. Thank you. I think you said that quite well. That was kind of what I was getting to. Thank you. And so Chronicler proves that he's also a listener rather than just a scribe. He was able to infer that it wouldn't be kind to charge Hap and Mary the going rate for doing essentially what is a will. So he charged what Quoth specifically says will not even cover the paper cost so that he's not coming across like he's giving them charity. He's still charging them something, but it's more apt to be within their means. And it also lets them have the pride of saying that we paid for this service. I kind of view it a little bit as DM fudge rolls. A little bit. Like, they don't know the cost of the paper and the ink and all that stuff, but they know that a service has costs and they don't want to just take advantage of something that's being just given to them. So Chronicler is finding a way to 
charge them something that they can afford, that they feel comfortable paying, so that they will accept that. And I think that's, again, Chronicler showing some of his own wisdom. I think finding ways to be kind and help people in ways that they will accept is really important. And talking about pride also brings us back to Kvothe and how he was never able to get past his pride in order to ask for help from a friend, specifically monetary help from a friend. He would never have borrowed money. And right now, this is the first time he's owned property and the first time he's had to pay taxes. The Adimaru, as a rule, do not own things. They're nomadic. They don't settle down on one piece of land that they then have to pay taxes for. They don't have investment in a set community or a set piece of landed community. Their community is what they take with them and who they take with them. So this is a different way of life for Kvothe across the board. And we go back to the story. So then we get to chapter 86, The Broken Road. And this is a bit of MST3K style (laughs) campfire storytelling. This is also the story of the boy that stole the moon. At least the first part of it. And I'm so excited for the comic to come out. Oh, that's going to be great. The illustrated version of it. So what I really like about this is we actually get a sense of Hespa as a character who's got more to her than just consternation. I like that because so far she has been kind of a one note character, which leads to the criticism of Patrick Rothfuss's portrayal of women. I think it's a fair critique. I think that Hespa is a character that maybe Quoth underestimates. I think Martin doesn't, but I think Dan sort of does, or at least ignores key aspects of her personality. I would agree with that. And I don't think that Tempe knows anyone well enough to know whether or not he should have esteem for them. However, we do know that Tempe is a keen observer of the human condition, which we shall see as we move forward here. So I do love that Hespa does something that Kvothe has not seen before, which is tell him a story that he's never heard. Kvothe has such an inflated sense of ego. Adimaru know all the stories, every single one of them, except this one, apparently. But now he does, because of course he does. Perfect recall and all that. However, I think we should talk about the story itself. Agreed. We start with Jax, who is just kind of a miserable person in every sense of the word. He's like Alexander in the no good, horrible, whatever the heck, I can't remember, very bad day. Yeah, he's got a little bit of that. He's got a permanent rain cloud hovering over him. And it's not enough for him to be miserable. He has to make sure that that misery gets passed on to the people around him. So this is not an Eeyore situation where it's just like, oh, okay, I guess I'm just going to be kind of miserable. This is, I'm a miserable wretch and I am going to make sure that everybody around me is the same quality of miserable as I am. If I can't be happy, no one should be happy. Leaves a bad taste in one's mouth. Yeah. I mean, we look at his interaction with the tinker and it's filled with ingratitude. Most people understand that you should treat tinkers with 
a modicum of respect. And he instead says, I am entitled to whatever is in your pack if you can't make me happy. Well, and then once he discovers the thing that will make him happy. He still takes all of the Tinker's stuff, even the things that he doesn't need. He doesn't even really want, but the Tinker does want, like his hat. Yeah, I mean, you know that the Tinker doesn't say, oh, give me back the expensive stuff that I need to sell. He's like, would would you at least let me keep my hat? I kind of like that hat. And Jax is like, I'm less miserable now, but you can still be just as miserable as you were before. He's this really toxic person, the way he kind of just moves through life, poisoning the lives of everyone around him. I think one of my favorite little funny interludes here is... First, the Tinker offers him a ball and cup game. And then Martin's interaction of nobody likes ball and cup. That's the worst game ever. It's interesting to see what little trinkets are being suggested to make someone happy. Where I would argue that stuff doesn't really make one happy. It might make you have a little bit of joy in the short term. And it might bring you joy in the long term by looking at it and remembering kind of happy memories. But the stuff itself is not the thing that's going to make you happy. And so while I agree, ball and cup game is kind of joyless in and of itself. It can provide a few minutes of entertainment. It's not what you have. It's what you do with it. Yeah. And I kind of feel like Jax is just sitting here constantly grasping. Like you can see that he's a broken person. He's clearly missing something in his life. It's stated that he is a very unlucky little boy. Luck is what you make of it. How you perceive your luck has as much to do with whether you are lucky or not. And he always seems to be convinced that he's unlucky. He seems to be convinced that anything that goes against him is because of his luck and not because of any choices that he's made. And he's also mad at the universe. And so... At the end, he finds a pair of spectacles, which helps clear up his eyesight, and now he can see the stars and the moon. And he arbitrarily decides that the thing that will make him happy is the moon, in the way that can only happen in a story, only happen kind of in a fairy tale. Because, as we all know, the moon is not really attainable. The moon is basically a common good. It provides light to everyone. It shines on the wicked and the just alike. It's something that we all share. The experience of looking at the moon is something that is not limited to any one set. And in a world without magic, or at least not magic that we know of, it's not like we can reach out and take it. And even if you could, what would you do with it? Put it in a box, apparently. Mine it for helium-3? Maybe. <laughs> but... Jax goes on what we all as the audience see as a fool's errand of trying to go and literally attain the moon. Try to go and get it. Try to go and possess it. It's very grasping and it has the feel of male entitlement to it. Like, I have a crush on this person and they are not really a person. They are actually a possession that ought to be mine because I like them. They're an object. And 
I don't need to be concerned with how they feel about me because obviously they should just like me because that's their job. Right. No agency, no choice, no thoughts or feelings of their own. Yeah, it's gross. It's gross and weird. And then in the way of stories, Jax goes off and searches day and night, trying to find or chase down the moon. There are a couple of parallels here between Jax's story and Quoth's story, because as we know, there are some really clear ties between Denna and the moon in this story, in the overall Kingkiller Chronicle. There's a whole lot of Quoth chasing Denna, trying to loosely hold on to Denna so that she won't feel like she is in a trap. So she won't feel like a possession with him. So that she'll feel like she's free, but Quoth will still have her. Yeah. This is a cautionary tale of the sort of person Quoth could become. Quoth is someone who's had a fairly unlucky life. He's had some tragedy in his life. And were he to allow it to define who he is, he could turn that into a font of bitterness if he's not careful. Now, there's also some speculation that Jax and Ajax are the same person, that Jax may also be Lanray, may also be Ajax, may also be all of that, same thing, Chandrian, all that. And that the moon may be Lanray's wife, right? I can't remember her name. Starts with an L? Uh, I'm drawing a blank. Again. Let's go to the internet. Yes, we have that. But again, guys, sorry about this. No notes, because yeah. And we read this two and a half years ago. Yeah, it was a while. So <laughs> apologies for our Swiss cheese memories. We're also 40. Okay. His wife was Lyra. Lyra, I was right. It started with an L. Yep. So it might be Lanray and Lyra. It very likely has a very tragic origin story that turned it into Jax searching to possess the moon. Yeah. Either way, this is the sort of person that Quoth could become if he allows a couple things to happen. One, if he allows his relationship with Denna to be the sole defining element of his happiness. And two, if he thinks of Denna as a possession. I will say, in the same way that possessions won't make you happy, another person also will not make you happy. If you were a miserable wretch, even if you found the love of your life, you would still be a miserable wretch. Maybe not initially, maybe the new relationship energy would take over for a while. But unless you do some real work, to really discover the things that make you happy and work towards achieving them. Not people, not possessions. I'm talking more about actions and fulfillment. It's about actions and attitudes as much as anything else. Like, I mean, I look at, we're getting ready to buy a new home. Having the new home is not what will make us happy. It is the actions that we do as part of that and how we use that to build on our own happiness and flourishing that will actually provide happiness. It is the things that we do for one another, the things that we do with one another that will provide that happiness. And in the same way, like if you are with someone, it's not being with them that makes you happy. It is 
the things that you do with one another that actually give you the ability to be happy. It gives you memories. It gives you contentment. I would say that there is a difference between happiness and contentment. I am a content person, but I would not describe myself as a happy person. I agree. I am similar. I think that happiness as a measure is typically overrated and oftentimes it's a word that is misused. I also subscribe to Aristotle's notion that call no one happy till they're dead. Okay. A lot can happen between now and then. I'm not saying that there can't be influences that make you more content or more at ease. We're not content with the place that we live right now. You guys know a little bit about the airplane noise. I have misophonia. Every time there's an airplane, I go nuts. There is terrible ceiling on the windows. And it sounds literally every time that there are people outside the house, like they're inside the room I'm in. It's cold because of that. And we spend a lot on heating and energy bills and waste a lot. These are things that will be fixed in the new place. Speaking of airplanes, there is an airplane out and I can hear it. But the fact that those things are being mitigated are not going to necessarily make me happy. But what they will do is not spike my anxiety or make me miserable any longer. And we have the opportunity to build new memories and the opportunity to make the space into someplace that is reflective of the lives that we want to live. We don't have to worry about anybody else's property if we want to paint or if we want to put up shelving or any of that stuff. But those, again, are not things that will make us, quote, happy. They'll just take away some of the barriers of what makes us unhappy. It is said that money won't buy happiness, but it can make a hell of a down payment. That is another thing to be said. You can buy a lot of things that will sand off those rough edges. Spaces that you exist in can sand off some of those rough edges. That absence of a rough edge can help keep your mood in check. Well, and it's also the difference between being able to spend your time and energy doing things that you care about versus having to spend all of your time, energy, and money on just bare subsistence. And, you know, sometimes when you can't even get subsistence, then, no, that, that is not something that makes someone content or happy or anything like that. You're not leading a flourishing life. Sometimes these ideas that money doesn't buy happiness, we're happier when we're poor, etc., are the sorts of things that people tell us to get us to make do with less. I'd say there's also kind of this school of you'd have more money if you didn't do X, Y, or Z. And I'm like, but X, Y, and Z are the only little bits of joy that we allow ourselves. So why do you want to mortgage your present for your future in all instances ever? If you cut out everything that ever brings you a little bit of joy or contentment, so that you can have something better later. Because someone told you that you can't have coffee if you want to save $235 a year. Or have avocado toast at brunch. Right. Like, I don't believe in a joyless existence. We were lucky, I'm going to say, that we had the ability to save while we didn't have a whole lot of things that we could do outside of our house because of 
world events. And we took the opportunity to save for a house because that's what we wanted to. But as things have opened up more, we've had to let go of some of the, well, I have to save every little scrap of money for this future goal that seems unattainable. And just let ourselves have some things, not everything that maybe we wanted, but some things so that we wouldn't go nuts. Okay, so we're going to hard left turn again and go back to the story. Yes. So before Hespa can get too much further into the story, Daydan finally cuts her off and it starts to get pretty ugly. He nitpicks at her throughout the entire story and is like, no, 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 I don't understand. How can a road be broken? I don't understand. How is the house right? I don't understand. I don't understand. And she's just like, shut up. I want to tell the story. You're ruining my flow. Go away. And then they just bicker. And at that point, the story breaks down and stops. Yeah. And it's also at this point where Daydan's frustrations, not just with Hespa's storytelling, but also with Kvothe's leadership, really come to a head. We know that Daydan has resented Kvoth for quite some time, and with fairly decent justification, too. Kvoth is a child. <laughs> he is kind of a know-it-all. He is also a lot less experienced. And meanwhile, Kvoth is also trying his best. He's trying to make sure that they don't overspend their little meager allowance from the mayor. There's a saying that one of my friends was told by his dad in my presence that made me laugh so much. My friend didn't have a whole ton of money and he was at his parents' place for a little bit. And his parents were going to go out and grab themselves fast food chicken or something to that effect. And my friend goes, hey, can I give you a little money to get me some? And his dad looks at him and goes, don't pay today for something that will be shirt tomorrow. You don't have a lot invested in something you actually want instead of just the fast food chicken when you don't have the funds to really do what you actually want to do. I guess my question would be, so did the parents just decide, yeah, we'll make sure you're covered for food or? Oh, there was plenty of food at the house. Oh, okay. There was plenty of food. He just didn't want the food at the house, which was ostensibly, A, free, because his parents were like, we'll pay for you to actually have food here. And anything that's extra, you just kind of pay for, because he was an adult. Right. And it was within their agreement that, like, he probably, if he had the money, sure, please pick me up something. But he really didn't have the money. Like, he was living there rent-free. He was getting actual meals provided. Okay. This was just an extra thing. I got it. It wasn't something where his dad was trying to be a jerk. It was more like, think about what you're doing. Think about whether or not this is something that you value. And the same thing could be said for buying stuff off the television. Or any number of other retail therapies that might happen. Maybe. I mean, there's a little bit of research that says that retail therapy can be awesome and nice in the moment but then lead to some buyer's remorse, which isn't good. Not great for mental health. A little retail therapy, one thing. A lot, it ceases to be therapeutic. As with most things, actually. The difference between medicine and poison is oftentimes dosage. <laughs> I like that, yes. Anyway, we know that Kvothe and Daydan are at blows over this, and the tension is getting really thick in camp. 
I would say that a lot of it centers around Daydan, but not all of it. Everybody's kind of at each other's throats. Everybody is annoyed with one another because they feel frustrated. And sometimes when you feel frustrated at a situation, it's really hard not to take it out on the people around you. Yeah. Kvothe is a convenient lightning rod for that, in part because he's the youngest and also he's in charge. He's also got his hands on the purse strings. And he also keeps himself at a distance. And he's learned that fear no longer works. It's not a deterrent. Fear and respect are two very different things. And because all he's really had has been fear and he hasn't earned respect, you know, there is very little to bind them together. However, I will say this is where Tempe shows a little bit of genius. It gets to the point where Daydan is like, I've got hairier balls than you. Why did the mayor choose you? I think that your delivery of that was a little bit off, but we're going to go with it. Okay, cool. Like we said, we're a little scattered today. And then Tempe's response is, why is the mayor looking at hairy balls? Well, first he just goes, what is balls? I don't understand what is balls. He totally understands what balls are. He's just trying to get the tension to break. So he guilelessly just goes, what is balls? And I got to say that the delivery on the audiobook is just amazing and I love it. This whole section is just, I'm pretty sure I laughed out loud at work listening to that. And just go, oh my God, I can't believe I just made the loudest laugh. But my God, this is hilarious and fun. I just, I was busting up and very happy. And of course, this is, oh, like six years ago. Well, and it also gives everyone a moment to step back. So suddenly, Daydan is not pissed off at everything. He's like, okay, now I got to explain how testicles work. Right. But it's not even that it's just like, so patently ridiculous to have that question. What is balls? Why is the mayor looking at hairy balls? And it's just, it's, it's so, wait, what? That it breaks everyone out of this loop of just being angry. And Tempe, of course, knows what he did. I love how Tempe has like this very subtle smugness to him afterwards. He's like, my plan worked. Quoth is the only one that can pick up on it because of the gestures and the lack of facial expressions. Well, and the fact that he's learned how Tempe expresses emotion. Yes. Which is different from how other people are used to. And it is a bit where Quoth suddenly sees that maybe Tempe is doing more leading than he lets on. With the tension broken, Daydan tries to coax Hespa into continuing her story. But the story is broken now. It's like the broken road. It's like this illusion that has been shattered, this atmosphere that has dissipated. And she says, I'll have to start again from scratch, but not tonight. And I think what actually works is for the first time, Daydan accepts someone telling him no. Daydan says, okay, well, when you're ready, I promise that I won't interrupt. I appreciate that. I don't like him as a character. You don't have to, but I think what that does is it shows growth. And this is where we see a turning point for all of these characters where they are learning to accept one another as they are, warts and all, 
Like you don't have to think that Day Dan is a great guy or someone that you enjoy, but you can recognize that he's come to respect the people that he's working with and he's respecting their boundaries. Hespa has a boundary that she doesn't like when people interrupt her stories or when they start nitpicking at her stories. And she especially doesn't like it when Day Dan does that because he does that a lot. This is Day Dan for the first time actually respecting that boundary. And with that, who's your Phronimos? So I chose as my Phronimos this week Tempe. I thought Tempe showed a lot of both generosity and also wisdom. We have our first instance of generosity where Tempe recognizes Quoth's flailing attempts at the Ketan. And knowing that this is something that breaks a lot of his social norms and taboos, decides to give Quoth some help. This is help unasked for and unearned and definitely undeserved. Maybe earned a little bit. By all rights, though, this is something that Tempe should never give to anybody. By every rule that Tempe has grown up with, this is something that would be forbidden. This is something that is a grave violation. And he also recognizes that this person that he cares about needs help. Whether that person will actually admit it and ask for it, totally separate question. But he recognizes that his friend needs help to do this. And so at great pain to himself, because it is painful for him, you can see that Tempe does not want to be in this position in the first place. But he gives Quoth the instruction so that he's able to move, not exactly like Tempe, but almost like him, so that he's able to perform the moves of the Ketan without completely falling over. Again, this is something that he was not obligated to do, he's not asked to do, but it was an act of generosity. And then during the story, or particularly Dedan's outburst during the story, we also see Tempe being willing to make himself sort of the butt of the joke. Like he recognizes there's all this tension, there's all of this hostility, and instead of trying to get into a fight, he makes himself sort of the one that everyone is laughing at and with. He's good at self-deprecation. Yeah, and again, no one expects him to do this. No one has asked him to do this. This is something that he has taken the initiative to do himself. He sees just how fractured and frustrated everyone is. And instead of rising to the occasion with more frustration, with more accusation, with more of the same, he breaks it all. And this rising tension just releases and everybody is happier for it. And like I say, it wasn't a zero cost transaction for him. He had to basically be treated as the laughing stock for it. And he was okay doing that because he realized that it would accomplish a goal, that it would help bring people back together and repair some of the damage that had already been done. I think that self-deprecating humor can be great. When someone chooses to do it, it can be a lot of fun, but it's never something that I would ask someone to do or to take on themselves if they didn't actually want to do it. I think that because Tempe is really cleverly timing all of this too, like he didn't just say random thing. Like you can tell that he thought about the timing of it and the delivery on this. Like 
This was a well-timed joke that he had taken the time to figure out that he thought about. And so he was able to do it at just the right time to help completely dissipate that tension that had been filling the camp and help bring everybody back together. So I thought that's a pretty good example of a Frenemos. I agree. I think that that was a very good choice. Thank you. And now, skipping the interesting fact, recommended thing. Yep, it's my turn again. Woo! We didn't think this through very well. Anyway. Eh, we got other things on our mind. So, my recommendation is Star Wars Andor. Oh, yeah. As you guys know, both of us are huge Star Wars fans. And when I first heard this one announced, I was like, Okay, I'll watch it, but I wasn't super excited for it just because I was like, oh, yeah, it was, he was that guy from Rogue One, right? And I would say that that's the consensus with everyone I've talked to about this in person, online, everything, watching Screen Crush, whatever. It was just kind of a, all right, I might check it out. It's Star Wars. I mean, it's Star Wars. I'm not going to not watch it. Right. Like, Star Wars is like pizza. Even when it's bad, I'm still going to eat it. So I was like, okay, yeah, I'm not super looking forward to it, but I'm also not super dreading it. There's not going to be any Jedi or whatever, but I'll give it a shot. No lightsaber duels. You know what, though? It was totally worth it. This is actually some of the best Star Wars television, hell, just Star Wars storytelling that I have seen really since the original trilogy. There is a sense of a truly lived in universe in a way that we really haven't seen in a long time. I'll also say that it is unique in Star Wars storytelling in that it is specifically written for adults. Entire episodes go by where nobody fires a blaster or gets into a fight. There are entire episodes where people just talk, where people actually are making all sorts of maneuvers and moves. And it does a couple things. One, it's the first Star Wars that I've seen that really takes the Empire seriously. We get to see what Imperial oppression really looks like. And it isn't just mustachio twirling evil types. It is banal bureaucrats who are extracting every last ounce of profit from the people who work for them. It is these systems of power that exert monumental control over every facet of people's lives for no other reason than because they can. It's all of these little small things that are used to triangulate people against the people with whom they should have solidarity. We see all of these small things that just add up to something far more sinister than just mere planet killing. I mean, okay, so planet killing, R.I.P. Alderaan, is kaiju level scary, right? It's, there's nothing I could have done as an individual on this planet in the same way that there's nothing I can do as an individual with a kaiju about to step on me. Yep, the only thing you can do is not be there. Right, whereas the scale of the terror or the evil is small. The rebel cells are tiny. There is this actual feeling of the few fighting the many for what is right and good and just. And the other thing that we see here is that the people in this nascent rebel alliance 
are not just completely good people. They are people who are conflicted. They're messed up. They are wounded. They are shades of gray. And what we really see is a lot of this comes from the damage that has been done to them by living in the society that they rebel against. They are just as much products of the empire as the the high up imperials and the Imperial Security Bureau. They're just as much a product of that system. And it shows just how corrosive that impact really is. So they're just as much defined by that as these imperial directors. What I'd say also about Andor is that the storytelling, the visuals, the acting performances, everything is so good. Yeah, it is well shot, well written, well acted, and it is just a really disciplined story from start to finish. The final episode is going to be airing before this episode comes out. So so that's the day after tomorrow. Yeah. As we are recording this on a Monday before I, I have cut myself so, so short on how much time I have to get this out on time. I'm going to say this also. It is possible that I might not make my deadlines every single time between now and when the house is all taken care of. There are also some other kind of exciting ideas that we have percolating about possibly making a YouTube series on our YouTube channel about all of the little updates that I want to make to our place. Almost every one of them is cosmetic, but I kind of wanted to show how we were making our place geeky and cool looking and nice without looking juvenile, hopefully, as well as organization for two people who are different types of neurospicy. And maybe if I get that all situated and stuff, you might enjoy watching it. Who knows? Yeah. So anyway, that was our recommended thing of the week. So now it's time for us to do our seven words. I've got the book. So let me go through here. Okay. No notes. No notes. First one I've got is the shine was definitely off the apple. Then I've got you can't have blanks on your maps. I expect he's writing wills and dispositions. Then you said yourself they love their records. Abbe Grimes wouldn't do something like that. Taylor, make a hat for my head. Then Miller, keep your thumb off the scale. Then this is your fault, Bass said flatly. <laughs> if they could, they'd take the rain. He didn't run around getting into trouble. Then we've got telling the truth isn't picking a fight. I will, she agreed, if you promise. And then the one I actually chose, which was ball and cup doesn't make anyone happy. <laughs> I thought that that's what you would probably choose. It's a fun gag. So uh, what are your seven words? I already said it at the beginning of the episode. Well, say it again. I didn't write it down. You can splice it in. Editing. Okay. Note to editing self. Splice in from the beginning. We'd love it if you'd help us. Well, with that, I'd like to thank you for potting with me. Thank you for potting with me. And thanks for listening to Tales from the Waystone. We're sorry we were a little bit scattered.
Join us next time on Tales from the Waystone as we cover chapter 87 of The Wise Man's Fear through the lens of the wise fool. We would like to thank our friend Shawnee Jang for our theme music. And many thanks to Patrick Rothfuss for creating a world that we've enjoyed exploring. And to all of our listeners for putting up with the fact that we're a little bit scattered right now. Audio production, editing, and social media coordination, courtesy of me, Phoenix McCullough. Writing and project management, courtesy of me, Will McCullough. If you would like to help support us and have the means to do so, please consider becoming a patron on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash waystonepod. Right. Also, please don't feel at all obligated to give us money. I don't think we're going to do a Sandman episode for the solstice. We're kind of busy around then. Yeah. We're going to skip this time, but we will come back for next Equinox. Promise. Well, I want to keep reading the Sandman with you. Me too. That's why I said we promise. We do promise. And there's a dog. Anyway, with that, here's to one more day above the roses. To one more day above the roses. Ding! Ding. Fourth, that fourth, <laughs> whatever.